jump into God's word. Father God, thank you for a great time where we can just lift up your name, uh, that wonderful and powerful name of Jesus. And God, as we look into your word this morning and we really are going to discover some really neat things about Jesus today, God, I pray that you would open up our eyes. Your Holy Spirit would teach us, would guide us, convict us, show us, God, how we can be deeper lovers of Jesus, how we can allow um, you, God, to just invade every crevice of our lives. So God, may um, my words be your words this morning, and um, may you be glorified and honored in this time in your son's name. Amen. All right, so for the past few weeks, what we've been doing is we've been looking at a bunch of stories, really, a bunch of stories about how Jesus demonstrated his power and authority through really just a bunch of miracles that he's been doing. Uh, he's been doing some healings. He's been delivering people. We saw even last week that he was, uh, he forgave someone of sins when they came just to really get healed. He ended up forgiving them of their sins. Well, one thing that we have noticed in these stories that really has been uh, repeated over and over again is the importance of faith. Okay, the importance of faith is something that's really come out in these stories. And we've looked at the importance of faith really in some different aspects. Faith like, remember we've talked about wholehearted faith that results in healing and radical devotion to God. Uh, we've looked at faith that results in forgiveness of sins. And last week we looked at faith that overcomes fears. Now, Here's the thing about we talk about faith. I've noticed this over the years. When we talk about faith in church, oftentimes we tend to leave feeling a bit guilty. Okay, we feel guilty. We feel like because if I just had more faith like we were just talking about, if I was just stronger in my faith, then my prayers would probably be answered more often and I'd be a better Christian. So a lot of times we have this guilt trip. So we're not going to try that. I'm going to try to avoid that this morning. So if you feel guilty when you leave, that's on you. I'm kidding. Just kidding. Hopefully the Holy Spirit will, will challenge us this morning. Because this morning, as we continue in our study through the book of Matthew, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture this morning that really actually dispels that kind of thinking. It really is the whole idea of this passage this morning is to get rid of that whole thought that I have to do better with my faith. I have to have a stronger faith. I, my faith is just not strong enough to do anything, to have God do anything in my life. So what, this, what we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at four more miracles. Okay, this is, a, this is kind of the last of a long string of miracles that Jesus has, has been performing. And we're going to look at these miracle stories this morning that show us really what true faith actually looks like. And I really, I think you're going to be surprised. I know I was this week as I was studying through this. Really, I, and truthfully, I had to wrestle. I really wrestled this week with this passage and what this really, really means and what faith looks like. And so I think you're going to be interested in what we find, hopefully, as much as I was. So let's start, look, let's jump in right away. Matthew chapter 9. We're in Matthew chapter 9. And let's start with verses 18 and 19, okay? It says, it says that Matthew says this. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Well, remember, as we saw last week, remember, uh, Jesus was explaining to John the Baptist's disciples about why his disciples don't fast. 
So now he's finished that. And probably just as he's finishing this conversation, a religious leader, or really what they say here is a ruler of the, of the local synagogue, who in Luke's gospel tells us his name is, is Jairus, he comes before Jesus with this super urgent need, okay? But before we look at that, you've got to understand, it's very interesting and unique that a religious leader would come before Jesus with an urgent request, it's really an odd thing because, after all, it's the religious people, the religious, religious leaders who are the most opposed to Jesus. They're the ones that have been doing everything they possibly can to get rid of him, to discredit him. So to have Jairus come to him, a leader in the synagogue, that was a really big deal. Yet, we're gonna, as we're going to see, Jairus was desperate. He was very desperate. You see, as we know from Mark's gospel account, his 12-year-old daughter had just died. Think of that. His 12-year-old daughter had just passed away. And once, and once this, this guy that was a take-charge guy, he's the guy that's one of the guys in charge of the synagogue. He makes things happen in that town. So once the, this, at one time, this guy was a take-charge guy. Now this guy's world is spinning out of control. His precious 12-year-old daughter has died. Obviously, he has either seen what Jesus has done, he's either seen Jesus in action, or at the, at the very least, he's heard about the miracles that Jesus has been performing. And even though he wasn't completely sure who Jesus was, I'm sure he had a lot of misconceptions, he must know that in some unique and extraordinary way, God seems to be with him. So he goes to him. In an act of desperation, he comes humbly. And look what he does. You've got to understand how huge this is. A religious leader in the local synagogue comes and kneels before Jesus and begs him. He implores him to come to his house and just lay his hand on his daughter so that she might live again. And next thing we see here, right along with Jesus and his disciples, they just get up and they, he, starts, and he follows Jairus to his house. He just, he just heads on out. But before they can get there, something else happens. Another person with a desperate need comes to Jesus. And let's look at that, verses 20 to 22. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. What an amazing scene. So as Jesus is, he's heading to Jairus' house, you know, maybe talking with him. Jairus is just probably just distraught. They were coming along. And all of a sudden this woman comes along who's been suffering for 12 years with really what was most likely a menstrual hemorrhage. She comes and she approaches Jesus. That had to have taken faith on her part because she had most likely heard about Jesus too. She might have even seen some of the, some of the miracles. And she told herself, if I could just get to him, if I could just touch him, I know I'll be healed. Now, according to the Old Testament law, you got to understand that a woman was considered unclean during her monthly period. During her monthly, she was considered unclean, which meant that she couldn't participate in any public worship at all. And really, she wasn't really even able to be around other people for the fear of touching them and making them unclean. So what this means for this woman, 
Check this out. This is amazing. What this means is this, this woman has been ceremonially unclean. She has been a social outcast for 12 years straight. No break. She has been an outcast. I think sometimes we look at these people and we think, oh, that's, just, that's so, so difficult what they were going through. We got to understand what was happening at the time for these people. Could you imagine being a social outcast because of something that nothing you could, you, it's not your fault again, at all. This woman is desperate. She is in desperation. Well, once again, in order to keep the focus, we talked about this last time, and to keep the focus on Jesus, Matthew leaves out a whole bunch of details that the other gospel writers talk about, like what Mark and Luke talk about in this situation. For instance, how desperate she was to be healed, that she had spent everything she had on doctors and physicians. She spent everything. And not only had she not gotten better, she'd gotten worse, giving everything she possibly could. And there's a whole bunch of other details. You can look at the account in Mark and Luke, you know, how, how about, you know, she comes up, the power goes out of Jesus, Jesus turns around, all these things but remember, Matthew is really trying so desperately in this gospel to keep our focus on Jesus and what he is doing, what, he's, what he is all about. We need Matthew's writing. We need someone that keeps our focus on Jesus. So Matthew's just, Matthew just simply tells us that he goes up, touches her, touches his garment, and she knows that she'll be, she'll, she'll be made well if I do that. And that's exactly what she does. She touches it, and we see that Jesus, with mercy and compassion, turns. he just simply turns to her and says, take, her, take heart, daughter. Take heart. Be encouraged. Oh, precious one. That's what he's saying here. And when, when he's saying, oh, daughter, he said, oh, take heart, you precious, precious person. Man, I can't imagine. Those words alone must have been like a healing balm to her. Could you imagine? No one had called her precious. No one had called her my daughter, my wonderful. And she had been away from all that for so long. But Jesus, with mercy and compassion, tells her, tells her, Take heart, my daughter. These words alone had had to just be life-giving life to her. Now, you understand also, the phrase that he says here, has made you, that phrase right there actually translate has saved you. That's huge. Your faith has, your, has saved you. Be encouraged. Can you imagine what this woman experienced? She had been bleeding and a social outcast for 12 years when all of a sudden, in a split second, she feels this healing power in her, the sensation of healing in her. Her recovery is instantaneous. In a split second, 12 years of hemorrhaging stops. She's healed, she's clean. She's also saved. I, I can't even wrap my head around that. But that's what the scripture says here. Jesus did an amazing thing for her. Now, we're, he just moves, Matthew just moves right along here. He says, after this brief encounter, Jesus finally arrives at Jair, Jairus' house. Okay, look at verses 23 to 26. He says, when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. For the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the girl rose. And the report of this went through all the district. 
So we see here that Jesus arrives at Jairus' house, where what's, what's going on here, this customary morning rite was, happened, was underway. You see, in ancient Israel, professional mourners were hired when someone died. You had to do that, okay? Even the poorest people, get this, even the poorest people were required, required to hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman. Can you, what an interesting career, what a, what a career choice is that? I want to go wail at funerals. That's my job. Happy person. I, you know, could you imagine? That's their job. But people had to do this. So that's what was going on when Jesus went. But Jairus, man, this guy was an official. So can you imagine what was going on? There was no just two flute players and a woman wailing. I mean, there was like, I mean, you lead choirs. There was a choir of wailers. I mean, they were just going crazy probably. And the music was playing, which really just makes this even more powerful of a, of a moment of what's going on here. That Jesus would come in and do an amazing thing. And he would tell the people, listen, you crowd of people that are all doing all this wailing, listen, this girl is not dead. She's sleeping. Can you just imagine? You got this whole choir of wailers and flute players and all this stuff going on. Also, they stop playing, stop their wailing, you know, wipe away the fake tears. What? <laughs> Hello? Jesus, can't you see that she is dead? I mean, we're the professional wailers and players. We know. We know when somebody's dead. She is dead. And so what do they do? They laugh at him. They say, you're nuts. You are absolutely nuts, Jesus. This is crazy. And they just scoff at him. You see, what Jesus is doing here when he's saying that she's not dead is he's saying that this death that has happened is temporary. Okay? Death will not have the final say in this girl's life. Her death is real. She is dead. But it's not final. You know, this could also be seen as a veiled reference to Jesus dying and right, dying on the cross and raising again. That because of him, he's saying, because of me, you know what? Guess what? Death will ultimately be defeated. That's what he's saying here. He's trying to give us a picture of that, kind of a veiled picture of what's going on. I'm sure the people there had no idea what he was saying. So Jesus puts the crowd out, tells them, you guys, go get out of here, pack your stuff, go to the next Go to the next place, okay? So he puts them out of the house. He takes the, we see in the other gospels, he takes the parents, the, the parents of the child, and he takes Peter, James, and John with him. And they go into the room where the girl is lying. He takes her hand, and immediately her spirit returns, and she gets up. And Matthew just moves on. He says, the next thing we're told is that the word, that word, what happened, spread throughout the entire region. Can you imagine what happened there? First of all, he's like, God, we got kicked out of that place. We were doing a great job with our wailing. We were, but that, you know, he went in there and we, we didn't see what happened, but we saw, we saw the girl again. This is crazy. What is going on here? Do you see what we're seeing from these two stories of this synagogue official with Jairus and with this woman with the hemorrhage is that both had something in common. Both had something very powerful in common. They both were desperate. They both had a desperate need and they were both powerless to meet that need. And in their desperation, what did they do? They went to Jesus. Out of their desperation, there's nothing more they can do. They were at the end of their rope. Every resource had been exhausted. So they went to Jesus. 
And here's the interesting thing about this. It's not like either of these two had this amazing faith, is it? It's not that, it's not like, remember what Jesus said, of the, I think it was a couple weeks ago, where he said of the Roman centurion, wow, with no one in Israel have I found such faith as this. Remember the centurion came, hey, just come and say the word and my servant will be healed. And he just went, wow. He doesn't say that about these people at all. He says nothing about how great their faith is. Their faith wasn't perfect. Their faith was not what we'd call strong Christian faith. They don't have their theological ducks in a row. They probably even have some pretty big misconceptions of who Jesus is. I mean, think about the woman who wanted to get healed. Who knows how much she, what she, all she knew is I just got to touch this guy's little tassel and I'll be healed. Who knows where these guys are, yet they came to Jesus believing that he could help. They believe that he could help, and he does. See, the main idea that we get from these two stories is that Jesus has compassion for and rewards those with desperate faith. You see, Jesus has compassion for he loves, he loves to come around, he loves to come aside, he loves to answer the prayers of, and he loves to reward people whose faith is desperate. I have nothing left. This is, I can't, I have no resources left. I need Jesus. These, show, these stories show us that no matter where we are in our spiritual journey, like these two people, we are to come to Jesus simply believing that he is able to meet our deepest need, despite our doubts, despite our fears, despite our shame, despite of where we think, oh, I should be so much further along in my spiritual journey than this. How can I come to Jesus now in desperation? How hypocritical of me. No. This is prime time, he's saying. You want to know the best time to come to me? When you're desperate. That's when you need to come to me, when you are desperate. Now, in our next story, we're going to see how Jesus really helps us with focus when it comes to our faith. Look what he says here. Interesting story in verses 27 to 31. He says, and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and said, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this, but they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. Okay. So here's what we're seeing. Now, Jesus leaves this house. This is a busy day for Jesus. Remember this day started a long time ago when they got off the boat after they coming back and the guy was brought down through the roof. And all, this was a long day. A lot of stuff was happening. So Jesus leaves this house and soon two blind men begin to follow him. And as with Jairus and the woman with the, Jairus and the woman with the hemorrhage, they too show their desperate faith in Jesus by how they approach him. Look what they do. They follow him. This, is, this had to be the weirdest picture. Two blind guys following Jesus, however they did that, screaming out, crying out, and we don't know how long they did this, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. Can you imagine people going, shh, you know, after a while going, man, this is annoying. But they just keep on going. They're just not going to stop. 
You see, by asking, here's the thing, that by asking Jesus to have mercy on them and calling him son of David, which is a messianic reference, they were, they were recognizing something about his messianic presence. These men are not only expressing their deep desire to be healed of their blindness, but what these guys are doing is they're also expressing their deepest need for being treated with compassion by somebody they somehow, somehow knew had the power and the ability to touch them at a deeper level than anything could ever do. They somehow knew that. That's why they're saying this about him. Now, it seems as though they follow Jesus into this house, okay? They, and once they're inside, Jesus asks them this really important question, which is interesting because we don't see him asking this question with a lot of people. Well, he says, he, he goes, if, he asks them, if you believe that I am able to do this, he says, do you guys believe that I am able to heal you? You see, what Jesus is doing by asking him this question is he's fixing the attention upon himself. It's like, you know, when a kid does that, your kid ever do that, come up to you, oh, we'll be off screen, go, daddy, you know, grabbed your face, listen to me, you know, listen to me. My grandson will do that. You'll be talking, he's talking to you, and he'll go, you know, do that thing, you know, with his little hand and pull you over. That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus say, do you, wait, okay, wait a second. Do you believe that I am able to do this? He's getting them to fix their, their, him on the object of their faith. He wants them to see it's me. Do you believe that I can do it? Do you have faith? Not only in some random supernatural power, but do you have faith in me? Okay? And they reply what? Yes, Lord. We do. And what they mean by Lord is that they believe and recognize that he and he alone has the power and the authority to heal them. And really, you guys, this is the question that Jesus asks every single one of his followers, including you and I. Do you believe I am able to heal you? Do you believe, do you truly believe that Jesus longs to treat you with compassion by demonstrating his power in meeting your deepest need? We say yes when we come to church, when we walk in that door, but when we leave and we go home and the affliction doesn't go away, the stress of life doesn't go away, the problems still exist we've been praying about, then what happens? Then it's easy to start going, I don't think we would say it out loud necessarily, but oh, can he do it? Does he love me enough? To do, have, have I done something to keep him from doing it? These are the questions that run through our minds. He may not, and here's the thing, when we ask him to do things and we come to him in desperation, he may not do it in the way and in the timing that we would expect him to, Still, do we believe that Jesus is God and the answer to our deepest longings? I know this sounds so elementary, especially for those who've been in church a long time. But yeah, of course I believe. But really, in our heart of hearts, do we believe that Jesus has what wants to throw out, wants to just bathe us in his compassion and heal us and make us whole in his timing for our good? And for his glory. 
You see, with this, that gesture of mercy and compassion, Jesus, what he goes on, the same thing he does with others. He touches their eyes and tells them because of their desperate faith in him, they're healed. Because of your desperate faith in me, you're healed. Again, we see these, these guys' desperate faith, it wasn't perfect. It, it just wasn't. Presumably, really, in order to... Um, not bring undue attention to himself. We talked about this last time that he'd warn somebody, tell him not to bring undue attention to himself. And he, Jesus didn't want to be misunderstood about what his mission really was. He didn't want to be seen as just this sideshow freak healer. What he does, he tells these guys, and I love it, he says he sternly warns them not to say anything. He's probably, listen to me. You know, you know, oops, sorry. You know, your faith, turn, listen to me. Do not tell anybody. Okay, this one needs to stay on the DL. Keep this on the down low. We don't want anybody to know what's going on. And with these guys' amazing, perfect, wonderful faith, what do they go do? They go blabbing everywhere. I mean, they probably left, oh, yeah, oh, geez, yeah we promised, you know, you, know, you know, we won't tell anybody. Guess what? Every, you know, and they probably just went crazy telling everybody they ran into. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the difference now? These guys couldn't see. Now they can see. They're looking at colors. They're looking at the sunset. They're looking at other people. They're looking at their family. Their family. Well, you, I can see you. Yeah, but I can't tell you why. <laughs> Heck no. They weren't going to be obedient. Not for a second. Their faith wasn't perfect. It wasn't all put. They weren't all put together. Desperate faith doesn't always look pretty, but Jesus says to come with that faith. All right. Let's look at verses, let's look at um, verses 32 uh, to 34 here um, and how Jesus, what's going to do, he's going to show some contrasting reactions to his power. Look what, he, look what he says here. And as they were going away, and now we're going to the next thing, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to, was brought to him. And when the demons had been cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds marveled. Never was anything like this seen in Israel, they said. But the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. So we see that Jesus leaves this house and someone brings him this demon-possessed man who can't speak. And we see that when Jesus, Jesus casts him out, the man's, able, the man's able to speak. We don't get a whole lot of information here. The story doesn't mention anything about faith at all. He just went on to say, do you, it goes pretty contrasting, huh? Do you believe I can do this? This story is like, guy comes in, demon possessed, he heals him. No, no talk about faith at all. As matter, as, and for that matter, there's no interaction with the man at all either. He doesn't even, it doesn't, Matthew records nothing. He says nothing, that, this could have just been like a thing, guy comes in, demon possessed, Jesus said, boom, and took care of him. It's, cra it's crazy how we hear these different stories. I mean, I guess you could say the people that brought him had faith. But here's the deal. That's not the focus of the story. The focus of this story isn't even the miracle. That's why Matthew just kind of blitzes through it real quick. The focus of this story is the two very contrasting reactions to Jesus' miracle. Notice the reaction of the crowd. They're absolutely amazed you know, they say that they, oh, we have never seen anything like this before. I mean, they're probably talking, actually, some of the people in the crowd are probably talking about all the events of that day. Oh, my gosh. 
what he's been doing. There was a guy that was paralyzed, and he came, and he walked away. There was this demon-possessed guy. He doesn't have a demon anymore. You know, there was this girl that was dead, and now she's alive. Blind people, and they're probably just going, jaw drop. They're just flabbergasted at this whole, at this whole thing going on. It's been quite a jaw-dropping day, and the crowd is blown away. Yet, check out the reaction of the religious leaders. It is quite different, isn't it? Very different. They actually have the gall to attribute Jesus' power to who? To Satan. They attribute his power to Satan. Even though a lot of these guys had seen or at least, very, at least heard all that had happened that day, they're still completely blind to who Jesus is. You know, how ironic that non-Jews, tax collectors and sinners, the blind, the lame, the demon-possessed, and now the mute can see Jesus for who he is. But the religious leaders, who frankly should have known, I mean, they were looking for this. The religious leaders were looking for somebody, a Messiah, that was going to come and heal the sick, give sight to the blind, this, this was like big flag, yet they didn't see it. They were completely blind to who he is. But it was the other people that had desperate faith. They were desperate that saw it. And we're going to see this later in chapter 23 when we get there in about three years. Jesus calls these, he calls these Pharisees, he calls them what? Blind guides, blind fools. They should have seen it. It was obvious who he was. How unfortunate. How unfortunate as with so many people today, these religious leaders allowed their pride, their arrogance, and their stubbornness to keep them from seeing the glorious truth about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Instead of admiring him, they accused him of collusion with the devil. I mean, you could not get two polar opposite responses. You just couldn't. That just shows you the power and the work of the enemy. So what does this all mean? What does this mean for you and I? How do we wrap this all up? Well, the first thing I believe that these stories tell us is that we need to make sure that we recognize the importance and value of desperate faith. We understand and make sure we recognize the importance and the value of desperate faith. Having desperate faith, what that means is that we look first, we look first to Jesus for wisdom, for guidance, for direction, for healing. Isn't it just so much our knee-jerk reaction so often to do the exact opposite? It's, oh, what do I do? What do I do? How do I fix this? How do I take care of this? Desperate faith, knee-jerk reaction is Jesus. I need Jesus because I know that none of this stuff, none of this stuff will work, okay? We need, when we look into him, he, that he has the power to meet our deepest needs. Now, this doesn't mean that we always must be going through a crisis in order to have desperate faith. It doesn't mean you need to go blind and then you will be able to experience desperate faith. It doesn't mean that. Or you need to get whatever. It doesn't mean that needs to happen. We can still have desperate faith when things are going just fine, when things are going well, even when we're feeling content, our health is good, our bills are paid, kids are doing well, the Warriors look likely to win another championship, you know, things are just going really well, we can still have desperate 
faith. You see, when we have the mindset of believing that only Jesus is able to do what Ephesians 3.20 says, far more abundantly than all we could ever ask or imagine, that's when we learn to depend solely on Jesus, solely on him. It's when we fail to see our desperate need for him that we begin to come, we start to become blind like the religious leaders, blind to who he really is. We may even know him. We may be saved. We're Christians. How many times we see this, even in our own lives, we see other people say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but the lifestyle matches nothing to it. Sure, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to do this my way. I, that's, first of all, that's not even possible. You can't be a Christian and say, I'm going to live life my way. It doesn't exist. But we do that all the time because we get our eyes off the fact that Jesus is the one that we need to be running to. Because when we fail to do that, we start to think, oh, I can handle life. I can do this myself. I'll come to Jesus in, in a bit. Let me work on this myself first, and then we'll come to Jesus. That's when we get ourselves into trouble. What these stories also tell us that in order to for Jesus to meet our deepest needs, we don't have to wait until we have faith, our faith in him all figured out. We don't have to wait. We don't have to say, okay, when my faith gets strong, when I become a strong believer, when I become a, a spiritual giant or whatever, then I can come to Jesus' faith. Then I can run to him. I haven't earned the right to run to Jesus yet because my life just hasn't matched what I say I believe. No. These stories speak completely against this. The Bible tells us that if we have faith the size of a what? Mustard seed. And it ain't that big. This tiny little mustard seed. If we have that much faith, what can we do? Move mountains. Move mountains. With a small, insignificant, what we would think, tiny, broken, sometimes with all sorts of weird thoughts about faith, but we come to that with Jesus. He's bigger than our weak faith. He's bigger than our in an insignificant understanding of who he is. He's so much bigger than that. That's what's so beautiful about it. More often than not, the problem isn't the size of our faith, but the object of our faith. I mean, we can have tremendous faith in an abstract higher power, but in the end, it's not going to do anything for us. We can have tremendous faith in ourselves and in our talents and in our gifts or even in another person. But inevitably, at some point, these things will let us down. But here's the thing. We can have a small amount of imperfect, imperfect desperate faith in Jesus. As we have seen, we've seen it with these people today. And with that faith, we can truly discover the, what abundant life, truly abundant life is all about. So, so how do we develop this then? Let's get a little, let's drill down a little more practical as we close off here. How do we, how do we acquire this? How do we develop desperate faith? Well, it's not hard. There are, I have only 12 steps. No, I'm kidding. The best way the best way that we can have this desperate faith that Jesus loves to throw his compassion at and respond to and reward, the best way to get it is to ask 
Jesus for it. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one with whom it originates. It comes from Jesus. We didn't manufacture it. So then why do we get so down on ourselves that our faith is not what it should be when it comes from Jesus and we're sinful and broken people? He's also the one that causes it to grow. He's the one that causes it to develop. It, that doesn't mean we don't have to do anything. We have to trust in him. We have to press into him. We have to lean into him. We have to lean into his word and in fellowship and all these things. But he will cause it to grow. So go ahead. Ask him. Ask him to give you the faith to believe that he and he alone is able to meet your every need. Jesus is the one that is able to make you desperate for him. And he longs to do that, to make us desperate for him. I want to leave us with a really a wonderful picture of what desperate faith looks like. As I was combing through scripture this week, looking for how, where, because I could give an example of somebody, but why don't we go right to the Bible? What does the Bible say about desperate faith? Well, King David, the man after God's own heart, wrote this. And really, I would encourage you, this would be a great prayer that we make this our prayer. So I just want you to listen, maybe you can read along, but listen, there's eight verses here what King David says, the kind of faith that he said, had in God, this, this faith that was desperate. He says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods. Amen to that. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help and in my, the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. You guys, let us be careful. Let us be careful this week to remind ourselves and to remind each other as we go about our week that Jesus has compassion for and he rewards those with desperate faith. Let's pray. Father God, we're just amazed once again at your word, your truth. We are so grateful that we don't have to measure up. We don't have to pull up our bootstraps to come to you, God, that you ask us to come with desperate, desperate faith, believing that you can meet our deepest needs. So God, I just pray for everybody here this week. As we go into this week and the enemy greets us when we open our eyes tomorrow with worry and doubt, that God, that we would see our need, our desperate need for you, Jesus. We would run to you 
lean into you and that we would know that you desire to have compassion for us and to meet our deepest needs. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.